It's easy to adapt to slow changes. It's not easy to adapt to rapid changes. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 99 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Andrew Christ from the University of Vermont about his research into how a forgotten Cold War experiment in the Arctic led to his discovery that the last time that Greenland's glaciers completely melted, it happened under climate conditions very similar to the present day. Here's Drew Christ. Hi, I'm Drew Christ. I am a Gund postdoctoral scholar at the Gund Institute for Environment at the University of Vermont. And I am originally from Denver, Colorado, and I had developed a real interest in science in high school. So I looked at a bunch of schools all over the country and I found Hamilton. And Hamilton is unique because it doesn't have any curriculum requirements. So I ended up at Hamilton and it really was within the first week of college that I discovered that I wanted to be a geologist. And so I did a senior thesis and that was my introduction to Antarctic geology and climate change. So then I went to Boston University to continue working on Antarctic geology and looking at how Antarctica moved in and out of ice age cycles over the last several million years. And kind of at the end of my time at at BU, I started working with another scientist at UVM, uh, my co-author on the paper that we just published, Paul Bierman, uh, who's a geochemist um, who uses rare isotopes that only form in sediments when they're exposed at Earth's surface. And we can use that method to understand things about how long something has been exposed or how quickly something on the surface is eroding. There's many different applications, but that's where I started becoming linked in with people who work in Greenland. And that's how I ended up moving around from Denver at the beginning now to both of the poles. Drew's soil sample comes from the bottom of an ice core taken during a failed Cold War effort to hide nuclear missiles beneath Greenland's ice sheet. During a time in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when there was a different existential crisis than climate change, namely nuclear warfare. So we began our conversation by asking Drew to tell us more about Camp Century, which was intended as a secret U.S. military base. So in northwest Greenland, the U.S. built Thule uh, radar base, which has to this day still a large missile detection system operating. And what they did in the late 50s was they decided, well, could we store nuclear weapons inside the ice sheet and hide them from the Soviets? (laughs) And so what they did is they hauled up a bunch of materials to build a base inside of the ice. And using snow cats and uh, snow machines, they trekked 100 miles from Thule up onto the ice sheet and started digging all these tunnels to build a base. And there's this old propaganda video that the army released that has all this bravado about man and the harsh Arctic conditions and, you know, dominating the environment. It's from a totally different attitude and tone long before the environmental movement. (laughs) So they were trying to figure out, can we live and work up here? And then the other thing that they were doing um, more secretly was studying the ice sheet itself to see if they could store nukes inside of it. And so the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers commissioned this one lab called the Cold Regions Research Laboratory. 
that's based out of uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. And they were just trying to figure out what the fundamental properties of ice were to see if they could build in it. And one of the ways that they wanted to do this was by collecting ice cores. And so the very first ice core was drilled at Camp Century with, you know, the wider military purpose of trying to figure out, you know, the fundamental properties of ice for building stuff in it. And then early climate scientists realized that they could reconstruct changes in past temperature and precipitation in Greenland by looking at the ice, at the chemistry and physical properties of the ice all the way down to the bottom of the ice sheet. And then um, within five years of that, they had to abandon it because the ice started to crush everything that they had built because ice flows under its own weight. And so these trenches that were, I think like 20 feet wide started to collapse in on themselves, kind of like the trash compactor scene and in Star Wars, when the walls start to move in, you know, it starts to collapse in on itself. (laughs) And then they also built the base in a part of Greenland that actually has one of the highest snowfall rates. And so just the volume of snow that was falling on top of the base was so heavy that it started to crush everything that they had built. And there's this uh, study where they went back to Camp Century in the late 60s to see what happened and everything was just destroyed, including where they had built a nuclear reactor. <laughs> and so they realized, we're like, okay, not a great place to build a base. Definitely not a good place to build <laughs> nuclear weapon storage facilities. But they did realize that ice sheets and ice cores specifically were incredible archives of past climate. In his article, Drew writes that since the time it was collected in 1966, the bottom 12 feet of the mile-deep ice core from Camp Century had never previously been studied. So we wondered why. Most of the science that they wanted to do had to be done on the ice itself. And so that was the main focus at the beginning. There were a few studies in the late 70s and early 80s, but really not nearly the... um, level of investigation as the overlying ice. And in the early 90s, the ice core and the sediment was originally stored at University of Buffalo by the scientist who originally collected it, Chet Langway. And my understanding of this story is that the ice cores ended up being sent over to Copenhagen to his longtime Danish collaborators. And so These cores get sent over in the early 90s, um, and they're kept frozen. Nothing is compromised. And the soil, the sediment, the frozen sediment, is stored in these glass jars that look like cookie jars, like scientific cookie jars. And they're put on a cargo pallet, stuck in a freezer, and then kind of just forgotten about. The, The Danes kept on collecting more ice cores from other places, and... Camp Century just kind of got forgotten about. And it wasn't until about three years ago when they were moving all of the ice cores that they had to a bigger freezer because they keep on collecting more and more ice. They need a bigger freezer. So when they're doing that, they are doing an inventory of everything they have. And they find these cookie jars that have these faded handwritten labels on them that say Camp Century sub ice. 
and they realized, oh my god, these we were wondering where these were. <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, that's when they when they found the samples and realized that scientifically we had this really unique opportunity to do a bunch of different analyses on these sediments with methods that just didn't exist back in the 60s when the ice core was originally collected. So it kind of is like almost like this time machine in a way where we get to work on the original samples, but get to use state-of-the-art techniques. And I think that's been just such a, I don't know, the chances. It just seems unbelievable that, <laughs> that we were able to have this opportunity to study this stuff. Though Drew didn't collect it himself, Doug and I wondered how the original scientists went about boring a mile-deep core into million-year-old ice in the first place. I don't have a great understanding of that engineering but I, what I do know is that they had to use two different types of drills to advance the ice core. So the one thing I do know about ice core drilling is that the deeper you go into ice, the harder it gets because you have so much pressure from that surrounding ice on the drill bit that it's harder and harder to keep the drill advancing. And you also can run into a problem where things start to refreeze down in the hole. And so one way that you keep the hole open is by purging it open with a drilling fluid. And back when they first did this, they used some sort of hydrocarbon-based fuel. And the way, the reason I know this personally is because when I was working with the sediment and I, I pulled it out of the sample bag and the lab just started to smell like diesel <laughs> so um which was which was i hope it was just diesel i hope it wasn't anything else but um so that's that's part of the technology that they use um and those technologies have advanced with more and more drilling experience in greenland and, and antarctica and other mountain glacier areas around asia and south america in the last 50 years but yeah, the engineering I'm not quite as familiar with. We followed up by asking Drew how it was that he and his team got access to an ice core that was over 60 years old at the time of their analysis. My advisor, Paul Bierman here at UVM, was asked by the Danes to do some analyses on these sediments to figure out how old they were. And so they cut a couple of samples from the 12 feet of soil, just the very upper part and the very lower part because we just wanted to see what was in it and see what the initial data might tell us. And so they cut it and then they sent it here to UVM. And then my postdoc project was to be kind of in charge of handling all of the sediment and distributing it to everybody and basically trying to see what the initial results were. And it's uh, four days before my PhD defense and my PhD was about Antarctica. There was nothing related to this project. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, was a, I was a little mad that I was in the lab. <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, all right, I only have a couple hours to do this. Let's, let's do this. And so we had prepared the sediment to be wet sieved. And wet sieving is when you rinse sediment through different size meshes so that you get different categories of um grains like sand versus silt versus clay and as we are wet sieving the sediment we're looking at the rinse water 
um, that's coming off of it. And there are these little black things floating in the water. And (laughs) we're like, what is that stuff? And so Paul is with me and he gets a pipette and just sucks a little bit of these weird black things up. And I plop it under the microscope in the lab and I look at it and it's twigs and, and leaves and just all this different plant material. And there was tons of it. Like it took us the rest of the day to get everything out that we could because we were trying to save everything. And we knew the moment that we found all these twigs and leaves and plant parts that it was going to be significant. It was like, there was no question um, when we found this stuff that this was going to have pretty big significance in understanding what used to live on Greenland when the ice sheet wasn't there in the past. Um, And so it was just really, really exciting because each thing that we pulled out, it was like, oh, here's a twig, here's some moss. And we just, our minds were racing that day. It's like, what what have we found? A lot of what we've already known about Greenland's prehistoric existence has come from the analysis of marine sediment. And it's indicated that Greenlandic glaciers reached the ocean as early as 45 million years ago, but certainly by seven and a half million. So we were curious to learn why analyzing ice cores can provide much more definitive evidence of climate change's impact in the deep past. Understanding what happened on Greenland in the past is challenging for one big reason, and that is that the ice sheet is covering almost the entire landscape. And so it is just physically difficult to figure out what was on the island when the ice wasn't there. And then on top of that, the ice sheet itself, in most places, is eroding the landscape and ultimately destroying what used to live on Greenland in the past. And so for that reason, most of the information we have about changes in Greenland are actually out in the ocean. And those archives are really useful because they give us a more continuous record of what is happening with Greenland and global climate. You can look at pollen that has blown off of the Greenland landscape um, and see what may have been living on Greenland. But as powerful as that data is, it's ultimately indirect. You don't really know where those plants were living, but when you get the bottom of an ice core and you get sediment from the bottom of the ice core and you find actual plant fossils, you have direct evidence for what used to live on Greenland. And you also have direct evidence that the ice sheet must have been gone from that part of Greenland too. So it gives us just a wealth of direct evidence for what was going on in Greenland in the past. That's not to say that marine archives aren't useful and uh, extremely valuable, but this is just you know one of the unique things about the bottoms of ice cores is whatever you find at the bottom of them is sourced directly from that landscape. So it tells you direct information about, uh, about it. In the samples they'd gotten from the bottom of Greenland's ice sheet, Drew and his team discovered the remains of ancient plants in the sediment. So we were eager to hear more about the methods that Drew and his team used to determine the age, temperature, and duration of those temperatures from these fossils. The first one I'll start with is is the most straightforward, and that is just identifying fossils, right? So if you can figure out what that fossil plant was, 
you know something about what type of environment it used to be by comparing it to similar types of plants that you find today in the Arctic. And so one of our collaborators, Dorothy Petit, is a Arctic ecologist, and she identified different Arctic plants that we found in the sediment. So that's that's one line of evidence that this area didn't have ice on it and there was a tundra ecosystem. Then another way to understand the biology is by analyzing what are called leaf waxes. And leaf waxes are long chain lipids, so long hydrocarbon molecules, and they form the protective coating on leaves and they can be diagnostic of the type of vegetation and you can do additional analyses to figure out like what the chemistry of the precipitation and temperature was back um, in the past. And so that's another way that you can understand what the ecosystem was like. Then another method that we used to figure out that this area didn't have ice on it was by examining the stable isotopes of the pore ice. The pore ice is the frozen water that was holding the sediment together. And so when we thawed the sediment, we took that melted ice and then analyzed its stable isotope content. And those stable isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen tell us about past temperature and also elevation. And the results that we found from those analyses tell us that the elevation at which the precipitation fell to form that water must have been a lot lower than the present elevation of Camp Century up at the top of the ice sheet. So that tells us that the ice was gone in the past. And then it also, those measurements also tell us that it may have been a little bit warmer as well. So those are lines of evidence that this sediment is from a landscape that was ice-free and that there was a tundra ecosystem living on it. And that alone is significant information. But geologists are really concerned with time because if you don't know when something happened, then it's really difficult to put it in context of other data sets. So just how did Drew go about determining the age of these plants? We'll hear after this short break. This episode of Parsing Science is brought to you by Figshare, a free-to-use cloud-based platform for storing and sharing your research outputs. Upload your tabular data, images, 3D scans, videos, and more to Figshare to get credit for all your research. And if you're a fan of podcasts, check out Figshare's podcast, School of Batman, where we ask academics to use their research to help Batman fight crime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Parsing Science. Here again is Drew Christ. So the next couple of things that we did was try to figure out how old are these plants and how old is the sediment. So one way that we tried to figure that out was by analyzing the radiocarbon in the dead plant fossils. And radiocarbon accumulates in all living things when they're alive because you're taking in uh, radioactive carbon from plants or plants are taking it in from the atmosphere. And then when you die, that radioactive carbon starts to decay away. And for organisms that are less than 50,000 years old, you can get a radiocarbon date. We tried that and we got results saying that these plants are older than 50,000 years. So we're like, okay, this is old stuff. Now, the other ways that we tried to figure out how old sediment is, is by examining the cosmogenic nuclides. So 
isotopes of beryllium and aluminum that only form in rocks and sediment when they're exposed near Earth's surface. And so we measured beryllium-10 and aluminum-26, which involves this pretty incredible chemistry process, which involves um, crushing rocks, dissolving them in really strong acids, and then purifying it down to just beryllium and aluminum and sending it through a giant particle accelerator (laughs) to measure these atoms. So you literally count the atoms in this material. And we can use the ratio between aluminum and beryllium in those samples to tell us how long ago these samples were exposed at the surface. And that is what told us that they must have been exposed within the last million years. And that I know that can sound kind of like an unsatisfying answer, <laughs> right? Especially for us humans who, you know, we think at most maybe 10 years <laughs> around things that happen. But within the last million years is significant because that's within a time frame that Earth's climate system hasn't really been that different. We've had a few warm periods um, similar to the last 10,000 years, but the big similarity is that we never had carbon dioxide concentrations anywhere near as high as they are today. So that's showing us that this part of Greenland melted away in a climate system that wasn't much warmer than it is right now. Drew's findings suggest that the fossilized plants aren't older than a million years in which case they must have grown a mile below the level of the glaciers in 1966, during the repeated ice ages of the Pleistocene. During that time, greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere were far lower than the current levels, and the Earth was rarely as hot as it is now. And, as he explains next, if Greenland's ice sheet had melted more than a million years ago, it would have been as impressive, but not as scary, of a discovery. Ice sheets didn't appear on the Northern Hemisphere in Greenland and in Canada and Northern Europe until about 2.6 million years ago. Before that, our climate was warmer, there was less ice at the poles, and it was a climate that we could be heading towards. Um, This is an era called the Pliocene. After 2.6 million years, we have a big uh, global cooling that results in large ice sheets forming and the Northern Hemisphere and larger ice sheets in Antarctica. And because there's so much frozen water stored in these ice sheets in uh, Canada and Northern Europe and Greenland and Antarctica, uh, that it lowered sea level by uh, 130 meters globally. So the million year age is more scary because it means that Greenland was capable of melting away under a climate system that wasn't much warmer than it is today. So over the last million years or so, Earth's climate has moved in these 100,000-year cycles that are mostly determined by changes in Earth's orbit around the sun. And that has to do with like how elliptical the shape of the orbit is, how much our axis of rotation is tilted, and how the Earth kind of wobbles on its axis through space. And when those different orbital parameters change, they can shift the Earth into these slightly warmer periods called interglacials that usually last around 10,000 years or so, like the present Holocene period that we and all uh, humans have lived in or human history is recorded in. And so in the last million years or so, we have now found um, a time when Greenland 
melted away and a tundra ecosystem emerged there. And that's scary because it, it means that the Greenland ice sheet is sensitive to relatively minor changes in climate. And the melting of that ice sheet would require meters of sea level rise. You know, you melt away enough to expose this part of Greenland and sea level is going to go up at least a meter and a half. And so looking forward with climate change and humans continuing to fundamentally alter the climate system, you know, the question is, what is going to happen to the ice in Greenland? Could this part of Greenland melt away again and then lead to much higher sea level? And that is a scary thought for our society because we have, you know, built so much along the coastlines. A majority of the global population lives in coastal areas. And then much of our global commerce and infrastructure is built near the coast. So, you know, what's going to happen to all of that as ice melts and sea level rises? Doug and I followed up by asking Drew what it might take for the kind of catastrophic climate change that caused Greenland's ice sheet to have melted in the past to happen again. What caused this part of Greenland to melt in the past is is something that we are still trying to figure out. Um, and, you know, one thing that is important to consider here is the rate of change. So in the geologic past, it's likely that this sort of event probably took thousands of years or maybe tens of thousands of years for the ice to melt away and be ice-free. But what we are doing as humans right now is we're warming the climate at rates that are much higher than what has been geologically observed. So we may be accelerating those sorts of uh, melting events in the future. It's hard to say what that threshold is for Greenland. And is it really just the intensity of warming? Like, is it two degrees centigrade warming? Or is it the duration of how hot it stays, right? So I guess one way you could think about it is like if you go to a barbecue and you have a cooler full of drinks with ice in the cooler, if it's 95 degrees outside and you leave the cooler open only for like 10 minutes, uh, and then take it away and put it in the shade or something, it's probably going to stay frozen. But if you leave that cooler open in the heat for a long period of time, it's going to melt everything. So it, it's not just the, you know, how hot will it be? It's also how hot will it stay in the future? Um, and that that's important for greenhouse gas emissions because geologically it takes a very long time to sequester carbon from the atmosphere back into the earth system and it's easy to adapt to slow changes it's not easy to adapt to rapid changes and so that that is something that we need to appreciate moving forward with how humans have affected the environment is just how much we have changed the world around us and you know at most the last 150 years and faster and faster every year that it goes on. So that's something that we have to think about is that there's already going to be warming built in. Um, and if we keep releasing carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere at exponential rates, it's going to take longer and longer to sequester that back into the earth and it'll guarantee us longer periods of warming. We wrapped up our conversation with Drew by asking him what he thinks listeners might take away from his approach to carrying out geologic research, regardless of whether their work is in science or not. 
So I'm I'm a geologist, and I was really focused in on doing these cosmogenic nuclides and figuring out how old these sediments were. And it seems like every step of this project has been um, realizing that there's more information with the material I have than I ever thought there would be. And that other people are really interested in working with you to figure that out. So throughout this project, the list of collaborators keeps growing and we keep sending more and more material to different people who have really different skills and types of expertise. And they've been really enthusiastic to help out. And so I think one thing for other students, other scientists um, and, and people who have their own research projects is that it's always okay and it's actually a really good idea to ask other people who know about certain topics that you're not an expert in or not your direct um, line of study for their help because you're going to get more out of that than you would have before. And it's ultimately going to, it's going to help you long term with just your project. But then now you have this wider network of people to talk to when you're working on projects in the future. And that's, that's what's been really cool about this project specifically is that it's collaborative. And so I, I know when you're a grad student that it can feel incredibly cloistering and, and kind of lonely sometimes where you're just trudging along on your project and, you know, you always have that thought in the back of your mind, like, oh, who, who cares about this? Like, I'm the only person in the world who cares about this. And, you know, that's not true. <laughs> there are other people who do care about what you're doing and are more than likely wanting to help you or want to work with you to learn more. So if you have an idea or if you have a data set that you think would benefit from the expertise of somebody else, just send them an email because <laughs> it, it can't hurt. It really, it can't hurt. And, and it could lead to something really good. That was Drew Chris discussing his article, a multi-million year old record of Greenland vegetation and glacial history preserved in the sediment beneath 1.4 kilometers of ice at Camp Century, which he published with Paul Bierman and a number of other co-authors on March 30th, 2021 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e99, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discuss during the episode. If you like what you've been hearing on the show and have the means, then consider throwing some of your hard-earned money after it at parsingscience.org support, or head over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you might get your podcasts and subscribe to Parsing Science. And if you already do subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes. It's a great way not only for others to learn about the show, but also a great way to help spread the work of the scientists on it. Next time, for our centennial episode of Parsing Science, we'll present a brand new remastering of our very first episode of the show, our 2017 discussion with Ryan Kelly from the University of Washington School of Marine and Environmental Affairs. He talked with us about his research into what matters more in getting cited, what you say or how you say it. <laughs>
It wasn't that I had noticed that articles I cited were written in a more narrative way. It was that I, I came at it from first principles of saying, well, if people learn by narrative and people best communicate and best remember information when it's told in the form of a story, I wonder if that, that concept from psychology and, and from literature and, and communications, if that concept applies even in the very dry <laughs> world of scientific writing. Uh, and, and we were surprised to learn that it did. We hope that you'll join us again.